Hello and welcome to the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. It is episode 29 and oh my goodness, what an episode I have for you all today. So let's start with a question. Have you ever heard of Peggy Angus? Well, I certainly hadn't until the amazing Claire Dales got in touch with me and told me all about this incredible artist. Peggy Angus was a British designer, artist and educator born in 1904. Although born in Chile, her family relocated back to the UK when she was five years old and she grew up in Muswell Hill, London. At 17, she won a scholarship to study at the Royal College of Art and studied alongside now world-renowned artists such as Barbara Hepburn, Henry Moore, Eric Revelius, and Edward Bodden, just to name drop a few. Peggy is best known for her love of pattern and design and spent a large part of her career making incredible pattern tile designs and murals for architectural projects around the UK, as well as making handmade wallpaper. I'm going to repeat that. Handmade wallpaper. Within the canon of art history, she's very much slipped into the shadows, but thanks to an exhibition at the Tower Gallery in Eastbourne in the UK in 2014, more is known about this great artist and it was a really brilliant platform for showing the world really what Peggy offered and the impact that she as an educator and artist had on such a wide variety of artists throughout the UK. Claire takes us on a brilliant whistle-stop tour of Peggy's life and work and sets the scene beautifully for allowing us to understand the challenges Peggy faced as an artist working after World War I and World War II. You are going to absolutely love this, so sit back and relax as I discuss the incredible Peggy Angus with Claire Dales. Where did you come across Peggy Angus for the first time? Can you can you remember? Yes, um, I live on the south coast near a town called Lewis in in East Sussex. And I'm really lucky to be a member of Lewis Printmakers. And it's run by a lady called Carolyn Trant, who was a student of Peggy Angus. And one day we were all in the studio and I was printing things. And she said, oh, that's the kind of way Peggy would have uh, printed that. And I was doing a repeat print of lino prints I was working on at the time. And I'd never heard of Peggy, Peggy Angus. But I kind of said, who? And <laughs> people would look <laughs> at me as sort of, you don't know. Because <laughs> it's actually Peggy Angus that started the print oh. group that Carolyn joined and then they became friends and collaborated um and um so that's where I first came across her and it's one of those people who once you know about them uh you think how did I not know about this person yeah before? and that's exactly what has happened to me when you wrote to me to say oh yeah we could talk about Peggy Angus and I was like who who is this and she's mm-hmm. this powerhouse of a woman and designer and more importantly incredibly influential within the history of British design for people that have never heard of Peggy Angus could you just give us a a very brief sort of whistle-stop tour of who who was Peggy Angus so Peggy Angus as a designer she designed wallpapers and tiles she was an influential teacher uh, and she also painted as well she lived in Sussex um, but she'd lived all over the world right from when she was mm, very and tiny. And for people that are thinking, oh, wallpapers and tiles, this sounds a little bit boring and dull. She was incredibly influential within British design. 
Yes, absolutely. She um, she's got quite an interesting sort of life actually that takes her to the point where she she's able to sort of break into the commercial uh, ceramics market. She was uh, she was born in 1904, so you know now quite a long time ago. Although if you look at her tile and wallpaper designs, they seem still quite sort of fresh and modern. She was the eleventh of thirteen children, and she was born in a railway station in Chile. Her dad was an engineer and he was actually the engineer of the, the station she was born in. So they moved around the world a lot. And obviously, you know, growing up and seeing all these different influences. But by the age of five, they had moved back to London. And she went to the North London Collegiate School. And in her class were other people that came or became really influential artists and writers. So there's Stella Gibbons, who wrote Cold Comfort Farm, a book about Sussex farming. It's a comedy. It was made into a film. People might have heard or seen it, but it's one of the funniest books of all time. Um, Emma Fanry Piper, who married John Piper, the artist. They were in her class at school. And obviously at the collegiate school, the art teachers were probably quite um, ahead of their time and really encouraged their students to experiment. And so she, Peggy, was in the art club and obviously doing really well. And when she was 17, she won a scholarship to the Royal College of Art, the RCA. And that was quite unusual. Obviously, this was only in the uh, 1920s, early 2030s. And in her class were the contemporaries of hers were Henry Moore, Barbara Hepworth, Revilius, Edward Borden. So lots of people that went on to be really influential um, creatives. And some of them, as happens with us all when we're at uni or go to classes or whatever, we, you know, make friends with people who are interested in the same sorts of things. And Revilius and Borden uh, and Peggy remained friends and came. they came to stay with her when she moved down to Sussex. Um, but she had quite a... a, a uh, an influential career in teaching, which was started off by the fact that when she went to the Royal College of Art and got the scholarship, one of the terms of the scholarship was that when she graduated, she had to go into teaching. No. Um, and, but, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't her first choice. But funnily enough, she went back to the North London Collegiate School where she, where she was a pupil. So she went back there as an art teacher and took, you know, went there and, you know, made a, a fantastic job of it. She obviously had limited um, sort of resources and so forth to work with and got all the pupils making uh, potato prints and printing from natural objects, that kind of thing. So really bringing a joy of um making something really small and then making repeat patterns of it to create other, you know, designs, experimenting with colours and so forth. So she's actually really, really experimental. And I can imagine it was probably quite a lot of fun to be. In yeah, I can, ima- I can completely agree. I remember actually when I was at school and we got a teacher in from the, the high school who was an art teacher and she did potato printing with us. And I was like, this is so fun because it's in your cupboard. But why... Peggy did that was because obviously this is post World War and you know art supplies particularly in school were very very exactly. short and very expensive <laughs> exactly 
exactly and our materials oh are sometimes goodness, yeah. are still expensive um but it just goes to show that actually you don't need much to create something um you know create something really stunning or something that you've just had fun making or that you can use on something useful you know you can you print up a piece of paper you can cover a notebook with it or make a little card or or whatever so it's you know it's a satisfying process and I think that's why it's such an enduring um medium is that it's accessible um but then obviously you know it, you can take it to great heights as it were you know everyone can knit with you know a pair of needles and some yarn at home but then obviously if you're going to create massive um you know tapestries or carpets or <laughs> going to textiles then that's another whole whole thing it's the same with printing as well you know you can make it as sort of simple or as uh, complex as, as or abstract as you like really but yeah so she was quite influenced I think by by what she saw in her world travel she was born in Chile as I mentioned but she traveled to Russia in the 1930s where it was obviously there was a lot of political turbulence and a lot of artists over there were using a really um, limited palette of materials you know paper was in really short supply ink was in really short supply um, and that created a particular sort of aesthetic and and art. Uh, much as I think I've noticed in the situation we are in at the moment with lockdown, a lot of artists, particularly last sort of spring, were having to use what they had at home because we couldn't get any more materials. We couldn't travel to places to to get you know more papers or inks or whatever it is people use. And you could see this this sort of um, uh, not necessarily being abstemious with materials but uh looking at what you can use around you to create something really quite astounding and repeat printmaking is you know a case in point if you have a tiny little lino box or a potato <laughs> that's a few inches across you can print yards and yards and yards of fabric or wallpaper but that's it. and or, there's almost something really not back to basics about it but there's something that you get so much joy in creating something out of a non-traditional material and also just getting a little bit messy I think and I think Peggy as a teacher I've read some like students that because she was incredibly influential and I've read quite a lot from her students that um, essentially were like she was the person that you know she really challenged us to travel and think independently and and to create and enjoy the sort of the whole aspect of creating and for me what I find really interesting is that and this completely makes sense actually you sort of going back a little bit to when she qualified as a teacher I read and I got hold of her obituary and and I'll leave a link to that in in the description in the show notes below and it was really interesting because it was written by an ex-pupil and she said that she that Peggy told her that when she qualified as a teacher, she kind of weeped because she was she didn't want it to sort of deter her from her art practice. So she only ever taught part-time and very much sort of used it as a inspire the next generation, but also she still had room to create. So I think it's just so, so impressive how she divided her time and, and she knew that it was important to create, yes, but also to sort of teach this next generation of, of women because this was a girls school that you can create all these beautiful things and just explore it as well just the, the idea of exploration in Peggy's work you mentioned um that she in the 1930s she founded the the Artists International Association 
I couldn't really find very much on that. Is that something that's still very much going today? Or because I know Peggy, her network, and she very much was inspired by William Morris and his idea of the arts and crafts movement. Is this something that she just wanted to use it as like a network of artists to encourage international collaboration? Yeah, I think from what I can gather, as you say, it's it's quite hard to find out a lot of you know how these things sort of came about and such. But I think that was basically it that um, sort of pre or, or between the first and second world wars, um, it was a way of putting people together and forming a network of of artists. I think much in the same way that people um, you know created unions for you know basket makers or. Um, cutlers or whatever um, and then as the time goes on some of those those groups join together to form larger groups but I think that was basically it it's about putting people together and creating a voice um, especially I, I think obviously at that time in the sort of um, mid to late 30s in Eastern Europe and Russia people who were creative in any way you know artists musicians poets and so forth could feel um, the, you know the weight of where things are going politically, and obviously in um, you know war situations or when somebody is trying to dominate the political landscape, often it's people who are creative are mm. seen as you know somewhat dangerous because they have a way of communicating ideas and thoughts or just promoting or sparking thinking, not necessarily promoting an idea or point of view, but just you know a sort of a questioning in um attitude in people and sparking curiosity and um and that sort of thing in people so I think it was a way of of sort of uniting people who may have become uh you know sort of disparate or isolated in their own uh work or practice or or geographically maybe I love and sort of putting them all together but yeah it's really interesting what you say about one of the conditions of her scholarship to the RCA was that she had to go back to the school to teach but actually she used it as a sort of a, a force for good and and to give a probably a you know a, a bit of um, a release almost in the curriculum where she where the students could sort of explore and experiment and I'm, I'm sure her art classes were just that um, but as you say create a balance and have time where she could actually create her own things and not be completely tied to, to teaching but to have the space to develop her her own practice after the war Peggy went to live in near Lewis in a, a little cottage which still exists but it's, it's a private house so people shouldn't <laughs> be trudging up the drive to find it it's called Furlongs and it's really well known because one of her friends Rebilius came to stay and actually did a really lovely um lithograph or painting and lithograph of it and that's quite well known. And it's and it's interesting, I think, if you Google Peggy Angus, one of the first images that comes up is um, an image that Revilius did of Furlong. So it's not necessarily even Peggy Angus's own images. It's, you know, a male artist, <laughs> as it were, sort of mm. pops into that slot. But it's really beautiful. And it, I think it's like a lot of artists after the war who lived in London moved out to the countryside around you know still London was still accessible and a lot of people still kept a foothold in the in the town but you could still just get up there in an hour by train yet you were miles from anywhere and had space to bring up the children uh you know an open an open landscape fresh air and it's really it's a really beautiful spot it's only 
half an hour to, to into the village or the town of Lewis. It's 20 minutes from the sea. And the light there is just really lovely. It's really beautiful. And you can see that that would inspire anybody. Um, and the house itself, in although it's obviously privately owned by or inhabited by somebody at the moment, um, she actually pr printed her own walls. She made wallpaper, but actually printed the walls in the house as well and created lots of furnishings and things for the house. Yeah, I love this. And again, very much harking back to sort of William Morris and, and the arts and crafts movement. So you said that she she created yeah. her wallpaper. Was the wallpaper the thing that she became known for first or was it was it was it the tiles? Because I know she also made tiles. Yes, I think, well, her husband was an editor. Um, he became editor of the Architects Journal. He was an architect to start with. And he was able to, even though their marriage uh, dissolved, they separated, he introduced her to a lot of quite sort of useful and influential people. And um, one of those was the pool pottery and the carters of Poole, who made um, sort of useful ceramic objects, dishes and so forth, but obviously were hugely influential in tile making. And they made roof tiles, um, and the carters' own house in Poole, which I've actually lucked to visit, very beautiful, has amazing sort of teal blue wave-like curled tiles on the roof of the house. And they also created tiles for domestic interiors, you know, sort of bathrooms and so forth. But at a time when people were, this was still largely pre-antibiotics, and people were quite concerned with cleanliness in the home and having a scrubbable, clean surface. And also in the 30s and 40s, that sort of clean aesthetic was very fashionable. So she, it was like a, just a, you know, a, two waves meeting at the at the correct point the, the pool pottery were making huge amounts of tiles and she was just the very best designer to come on board with them and one of the images that you've got there is actually of tiles that she made for pool potteries and the way that they became so popular was I think their flexibility of use so the tiles themselves are quite simple geometric shapes and some of them were were stamped onto the tiles a lot of them were screen printed so it was quite easy to change the colors of the tiles uh, and to mass produce them quite accurately so that if you picked one tile you could arrange them in any number of ways to create different patterns on a wall and the the designs would match up so the line on the edge of one tile would match up with the line on the edge of the other and they became really popular and they were used in um, schools and um, private houses. But they really took off a lot of the London architects um, used them in schools because they were seen as hygienic and quite fun. There's an image there of, which is actually um, Heathrow Airport. And although it's a black and white image and a lot of the images at the time are black and white, the colours of the tiles were really quite striking. So you could create a real sort of feature wall. And often that's where they were used in uh, entrance halls or in cafeterias or stairways, where it's a really practical 
material because of course it can take sort of knocks and scuffs and so mm. forth and a lot of them are still there if the school hasn't been demolished the wall's still there and it's in as good a nick as it was you know the day it was put up um which was also chosen by some local authorities for outdoor projects and um there's an image there of the clock tower in Coventry in the, the main square in the shopping centre with a, a rather cheeky lady, lady Godiva who comes out at the strike of the hour on her horse, <laughs> like a little uh, cooking uh, clock and runs round. <laughs> so that's one of her, and that's, that, those are her tiles behind it. So they're often picked up by designers as a really lovely way of getting you know, a durable sort of pop of colour into their scheme um, at, at a, you know, not an inconsiderable cost, but, you know, a, a durable, long-lasting um, feature. And they're incredibly beautiful, I think. And it's, they look really simple, but actually, as with anything that looks really simple, uh, it isn't always. Well, that's <laughs> it. And there's a lot of thought, like you said, it's just incredible and so interesting to think that, because um, I had never even considered the whole idea of the um, the hygiene aspect of tiles because when I started reading into Peggy to prep for the podcast and I saw that she had made all these tiles and I'd seen I was like I mean is there because I, I read somewhere that there was a boom in production post World War II for new housing estates and buildings and airports and expansion and I was like, oh, but was there, would there be a lot of tiles? But you're so correct. And then when I thought about it, I was like, well, yes, think about it. Like the, the entirety of the London Underground near enough is tiled. Um, and then also when I think of old pubs and buildings that are also tiled, their facades are tiled. And I just, you walk past it and you completely, I don't know, it's hidden in plain sight, which I think a lot of these these things are but the school aspect is so interesting because they're also so colorful and joyous and just really good fun to have in a school for kids <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it's really interesting that you say that because obviously post-war the government were very aware of a lot of people suddenly becoming unemployed and a lot of factories that had been used for war work were redeployed in making materials to satisfy the housing boom as you you mentioned so there are uh, the oxford aluminium works were repurposed for making aircraft parts to making building frames and there are some building frames in aluminium and it sounds like a daft thing to do really expensive and so forth but it was part of the government's pro uh, push to make sure that the manufacturing plants still had uh, things to make and people were still employed and the building boom could go on um so that's that's another that's another whole subject there about 20th century that's building so but 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 it was but the thing that with tiles is that they're they're hygienic they're durable they're fun you can put any color you like on them there are lots of different ways of getting images onto tiles as screen printing or um you mentioned sort of victorian tiles some on the very early underground and on pubs and so forth and they were put there for similar reasons that they were you know hygienic they were clean you could wash them and also you could because of the way they were manufactured you could create um sort of corporate colors and branding so if you look at london underground tiles on the the sort of the earliest underground stations so some of those on the 
district line, say Kensington, they're that deep sort of oxblood purple red mm. colour. Uh, and that was a, just a colour that was selected for the outside of tube stations so that they were recognisable. But also people could recognise their texture. If you couldn't see them because the smog was so bad, you'd know that it was a station. That, oh my gosh, that's so, so a tactile good. <laughs> element there as well. So it's like, yeah, so that's why that I think they're so they're so enduring. Um, and, you know, everyone probably has got some tiles in their house now that they've chosen for aesthetic reasons. You know, they like the colour, they like the texture and they're really tactile as well. I think. Yeah, tiles are beautiful. It's so interesting though because when I was looking at sort of Peggy's design, I was like, they are so of its time because they're very bold. Um, you know, they're very design heavy. There's a lot of imagery there, and I feel very much as you know, time has progressed, people have adopted this sort of minimal aesthetic in tiles, and it's very of of the age to have these like highly, um, sort of motive heavy tiles. But one of her sort of biggest design projects tile wise was for a really important event that happened in 1951 and that was for the festival of britain yeah absolutely and i think it's really interesting if you look at a lot of her if you look at her tiles versus her wallpaper there's a quite a different aesthetic the wallpapers she's she started really making those after she'd been on a, a bike trip around indonesia as you do. And I think had seen, <laughs> had seen people, you know, hand printing them using wood blocks. And she didn't use that method when she came home. She used what she knew and used and had to hand, which was lino. But a lot of the wallpapers are much more sort of organic. And you'll see sort of sun features and sheaves of corn. And they refer more to perhaps the natural landscape that was around her in furlongs that she'd seen on her travels. And the tiles, although there is there are some uh, duplication, there is a tile with a sun motif on it. A lot of the tiles are more, as you'd say, the sort of Festival of Britain aesthetic. And I think perhaps because they were being selected by architects for works that were part of that whole you know, rebuilding of Britain and that whole optimistic looking forward. Uh, we can do everything. We're, you know, clean and shiny and everyone's healthy. Um, um, look into the future after the, you know, the dreadful time that the, the world, well, that you know, Europe had been enduring, that her tiles for Carters, for example, are actually more of that aesthetic, but that could be, either what she was driven to produce or what she was asked to produce by Carter's because obviously they're a commercial company and they need to be commercially successful. Whereas if you create something just off the top of your head, it might be a slightly different aesthetic. Mm. So I think that's perhaps why the two are slightly different, um, even though produced more or less, you know, side by side at the same time. Yeah, and I think that quite nicely leads us on to her wallpaper actually because the this is incredibly detailed and what's important to stress and hit home not you know manufactured on an industrial scale all handmade yeah absolutely it's all hand hand printed and if you look if you look sort of carefully at the you know it's a, it's a sheet of wallpaper or whatever um and there are plenty of examples on the, the internet the, one of the best places is the 
Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, um, or the East Sussex Records Office um, at the Keep in Brighton. They have the actual examples, but there's a lot available online. But if you look at them, you can sort of see where the you can see where the edges of the blocks are um, because of maybe just a slight line or whatever. But of course, that's part of the beauty of, of a hand-blocked uh, wallpaper or, or textile or whatever is that it is uneven. And that's the characteristic of it. Partly it's the surface of the lino, partly it's how you ink it up. The paper might have a, just a slight wrinkle in it. And all those come together to make something where the, the beauty is in the imperfection. You know, if you wanted a completely flat surface then you could you know reproduce it by other means but the other thing that's really clever is that um on the slide there's, there's one of wallpaper there's a sun motif on the left and on the right the green sort of waved pattern with the leaves in it and the flowers is that actually although you can see where there's a square block they actually join up into the next block so if you look at one of the little flowers you can see that on the block there's only a quarter of the flower on on each block and they join together to make one flower oh, it's so clever so although it looks just like oh we're quite oh I can just you know <laughs> I'll do a design little work actually there's a real there's a real design um uh or a number of things you have to do to make sure that your design joins up properly and that the repeat sort of flow and that it a small element expands over a large surface to make a pleasing design that doesn't have sort of holes or gaps in it or where there's a sort of a slightly crowded area in one area and a sort of a, a blank part in another. And that's a whole technique, which I was lucky to have explained to me by one of Peggy's students. <laughs> so um it's one of those things that looks so straightforward, but if you have a go at it, you realise it's not quite so straightforward. Well, that's but it. Really and then that's, that's how you know someone is a master of their craft, though, because they make it look yeah. easy. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that's quite key, um, and you see quite on Peggy's work, is the, the sun face on the left is that she'd use a sort of positive and negative of an image. So you can see on one half of the face, the face is pale and the eye is the darker colour. And on the other side, the face is the darker colour and the eyes and the nose, the lighter colour. And that's all to do with how it's been cut out of the lino. So when you cut a piece of lino, um, the print process is you, you draw your design on it, making sure you remember that it'll print back to front. <laughs> and what you remove isn't printed. So what you leave on the block is printed. So actually, this is a, a sort of a, a reddish colour ink on yellow paper. So the yellow is actually the colour showing through. So it's just one colour ink painted on a printed on a colour background. That creates another another whole effect of itself. So the, the choice of the colour of ink and the colour of paper or fabric you use gives the same block a completely different look. I just think it's... It's so incredible. And for everyone that's listening to this, um, the images that we're referring to, you can view them on my website and also on my Instagram page and my highlights as well. And I'll leave links to that in the show notes. But what I cannot get over is the level of detail in these and that she hand pressed these with, of course, groups of apprentices. And there's these, the, the purpose for them was 
they weren't just to be put up in a room and they were the the main feature they were to be they were secondary to the art in the home because she she produced all this because she really wanted people to use them as a backdrop to show their their artwork yeah exactly that's the thing it's it's a it is a huge amount of work to go into hand printing things it's a really exhausting process and it's and it's a long process as well um you know first of all you've got to have the idea in the first place which is one whole skill um then you've got to cut the you know design the liner blocks so that it it fits together and just like tiles anyone that's tried to lay um sort of pavers in the garden or tiles in the kitchen you pretty soon realize that you have to be quite accurate and that if you've got tiles that are twice as long as they are high you've got to you know they can only be laid out in a certain way all these sorts of things and then you've got to cut it and then ink the blocks and carry on printing them um and you know a 10 meter piece of roll of wallpaper doesn't go very far on your wall anyone that's you know even the smallest room you're going to need sort of three or four rolls if you imagine all of that's going to be hand printed and just the space you need to do it and and so forth so it's incredibly labor intensive process um or you can just as i've done (laughs) print straight on your walls (laughs) cut out the paper and go straight to the wall which she did in her house apparently as well but but yeah i think that's the thing it's just uh it's there in in people's homes and i think especially at the moment obviously interior design goes in waves and it's, it's interesting that the two Pantone colours this year, the, the, the yellow and the grey, are, are very sort of um, 1950s. Yeah. And I think at the moment we've gone back to kind of white walls, so it will show your furniture, so it will show your artwork, when actually if you have a richly coloured patterned wall, it can complement your things just as well and make the room, you know, sort of warmer, really, visually warmer and visually more interesting. Well, that's it. I, I do feel like there is this aesthetic at the moment for these really sleek, minimal designs and, like you said, white walls. And actually, colour and pattern are so important and just make you feel better. <laughs> exactly. I think everyone should try it. Yeah, <laughs> that's mean, it. I don't think everyone's got a potato in their house. And you could li- you don't have to assume you're going to start off doing a 10-metre piece of wallpaper. But... Um, if you just created a tie, you know, a print, however big your potato is, and print it sort of randomly, you can create some really nice effects or do it in a grid pattern, um, you know, just on a tiny piece of wall or, or a room which you don't look at all the time, you know, the downstairs loo or something. <laughs> just have a go. And if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. You can paint over Well, that's it. You can just, get... exactly, just whack some white over it and, and that will be exactly. you. With Peggy, what I find most unusual or not unusual I think this happens to a lot of particularly female artists is that she's kind of disappeared from the record books yes I think that's sadly the case with um a lot of women artists I think someone once told me when I was looking at some doing some fabric designs he he was was a fabric designer for Courtauld I think uh, and did lots of fabrics for well-known furniture designers and he said it's always the furniture designer that gets the credit never the textile designer so I think there's that element of it you know you're creating a part that goes into making something larger but I think a lot of women um, were overlooked I think sadly it's perhaps still still the case that if you know a woman's doing 
in this case, you know, lino print, it's a craft. If a man's doing it, it's seen a bit more as an art. So mm. that's definite gender gender basis. And also she was, you know, seen as a sort of a teacher and, you know, she did some tiles for pool pottery and so forth, but has sort of gone, you know, been been passed over, I think. Although articles were written about her at the time, it would be more incidental as in, oh, yes, you know, there were some tiles made for the school rather than it being about her specifically. Um, and she also carried on teaching until 1971. So I think that was the thing, although it was really great for her students to see that she did teaching and also had time for her own sort of personal work and was working or designing for classes. She was still seen as, you know, a teacher that does some other work rather than, you know, being taken as... An, an amazing what she was you know an amazing creative person and, and teacher but in an inspiring way and I think everyone I know that has you know met her or knew her um uh you know says just that about her that she was really inspiring but I think that's why and a lot of women artists of the time are were seen as the um you know the lesser part of a of a partnership even if you look at um the days or Alison Bachelor, the animators who wrote um, or did the animations for Animal Farm and a lot of the Make Do Amend campaigns in uh, the films and illustrations in the Second World War, um, that the, the woman of the, of the duo is often overlooked and actually they're seen as the, you know, the helper out rather than an equal partner in the duo. So I think that is, is probably why. Mm. another thing that I another theory that I had read is because obviously a lot of her work was private mm. commissions so actually it's it, she didn't work with big galleries and, and big names she she worked with private clients so a lot of it technically air quotes here is sort of hidden away from people but she is still largely celebrated I also read um, this terrible thing that said although her husband and her sort of separated and like you said earlier in the podcast he was very influential in introducing her to a lot of architects and a lot of people that she went on to collaborate with and work with but he and he himself was a celebrated architect but didn't mention Peggy in his memoir so just yeah just so interesting how she's been left out of a narrative and even in preparing for the podcast I I got to a stage where I was like oh there's nothing really about her after 1971 like you said when she stopped teaching yeah that's the thing um I think obviously she continued to teach in in Lewis and uh, and around here but I think the people who have written about her her recently so Carolyn Trance she wrote a really beautiful limited limited edition biography art for life which was based on her interviews with Peggy and knowing Peggy personally um obviously it's quite hard to get hold of that book (laughs) Um, but in 2014, yeah. there was a quite a large exhibition at the Town Gallery in Eastbourne, um, Peggy Angus, teacher, designer and painter. And it was, uh, I think, quite an eye opener for a lot of people that there was this woman who lived, you know, basically where, where we live, more or less, um, who is creating all these things. And some, you know, sort of, I think a lot of people have actually seen her work, but not realised it. You know, if you walk around London, uh, you'll still see her tiles but not necessarily know that they were hers and this exhibition looked at her and her contemporaries so Revilius and Borden and Enid Marks who's another amazing printmaker who is 
sort of overlooked, I think, for, for similar reasons. She actually designed a lot of the fabrics for the London Underground, the maquette. Oh, yes. I, I think I've seen an exhibition of hers at the... the illustration. Um... Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. thank it's, you. It's really good stuff there. Um, so another one sort of slightly overlooked, but that was a really, you know, a really good exhibition for just, you know, drawing people's attention to to her. And also, I think it's really interesting of sort of who knew who. Mm, yeah, 100%. <laughs> At that time around, you know, sort of World War Two and after in Sussex, this area of Sussex and also in other parts of sort of around London, sort of Hertfordshire and so forth, you found little pockets of artists. So all the artists that were in the town of Ditchling, which isn't too far away uh, over the downs there. And then you had Peg Yangus, you had Lee Miller and um, Roland Penrose, who lived in Chiddinglie, which was not very far away. Then you had Charleston with all the Bloomsbury set, Virginia Woolf and Duncan Grant living there. And of course, you wouldn't assume that they were all just because they were artists, they were all best friends with each other. But I think it's quite interesting that there was this whole network of artists doing quite different things, quite different lifestyles, different friends, perhaps, but, you know, all in the same area at the same time. Mm, yeah. But there's something so lovely about it as well, though, just to think that that maybe they had conversations with each other and they were aware of perhaps what the others were up to it's just it's a really interesting I love when there's little sort of pockets of artists communities because then I think that speaks so much of the area and the inspiration that comes from it as yeah, well exactly and it's it, it, it is really an inspiring um, landscape when I mean, there are a lot of artists along the south coast in Eastbourne and Hastings has, has long had a quite a strong tradition of people creating art there and it is really beautiful when I mean, the downs aren't, an, you know, it's not a national park for nothing. The lovely sort of bald horizon you get because um, there are no trees on it at all. Um, and, it, you know, you're near the sea. And, you know, I live a sort of about a mile and a half from the sea. And you can tell when the sun's shining on oh, it because lovely. of the light. So there's that. And then you're really beautiful, you know, ploughed fields and... Um, gorgeous towns and then you're not too far from you know ports where you've got you know kind of rusty industrial you know cranes and and all the comings and goings you know there's there's a there's a huge amount of variety and I think it'd be quite hard for anyone not to be inspired some way by the environment here so I think that's you know it, it I think that's why it attracts people seasides always attract people but I think post-world war Two. Obviously, a lot of people just wanted to perhaps not be in London and have a bit of space. Well, that's it. And I, I also think that's very much yeah, a, a current day um, discussion. <laughs> I'm having a lot a lot with my friends at the moment. Everyone's kind of like, oh, should we head to Margate? Margate actually seems to be the place a lot yeah. of people are flocking to just for space, but also by the sea, you know, just the, the connections that you have um, railway wise to get back into a big city. It's incredible and, and interesting to see um, the community communities that will form after lockdown, and more importantly, I think as well the art that will come from lockdown. And yeah, it's it's been so wonderful to to kind of witness really people getting creative and going back to basics. And like you said earlier, you know, people using found objects to create again. There's something really, I don't know, hopeful and inspiring um, after something terrible has happened. Yeah. And, 
yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting time to see what happens. Perhaps there could be a new Peggy Angus well, on the be. card somewhere, uh, someone <laughs> listening to this might be inspired to get their potato prints out you've actually oh, really good. inspired me <laughs> yeah I can say it's I think it's looked sort of looked as looked at as sort of something something children do you know something for the nursery more or less but it's but it's actually really good and if you're going to try a potato print you just need to, there are just two things to remember one be careful when you're cutting it that you don't chop your fingers cut away from you safety but when you come to print with your potato you'll get the best print if the potato is sort of a bit dry so if you cut a potato of course it's lovely and juicy inside so if you just dab it on a piece of newspaper or something to dry it or just leave it for a couple of hours to dry you'll find the ink sticks to it better and you'll be able to print with it and you can use you don't have to use anything fancy you can use um if you've got printing ink or, or great but you could use um a, a acrylic paint or any kind of paints you've got at home and if you haven't got any paint if you make a really gloopy paste uh, from flour and water, but really thick, and then just add food colouring in, that works. Or you can use PVA with a bit of food colouring or paint in it. That works as well. Okay, I'm <laughs> going to make a promise now, and I'm going to keep this. I'm not going to edit this out. This podcast will come out, I think, round about okay. sort of April, May time. By this coming out, Claire, oh, I will do a potato print <laughs> and put it online to, to go with this because... This is so exciting. I mean, if you've got um, you know, any plants in the garden or on your windowsill, you know, or the bits of vegetables that you that you don't necessarily eat. So the other week I was, you know, I chopped a cabbage in half and I thought, oh, that's pretty. <laughs> and when you cut out the, the stalk bit, perhaps I've got chickens that normally go out to them. Um it looks like a little tree and I actually used it to make Christmas cards oh I love that see but this is the thing like you can get so creative yeah, but once with you everything start, <laughs> it's, it's like anything once you start thinking yeah I'm going to print stuff you then start seeing patterns in kind of everything so beware <laughs> so it's one of the because I'm I'm sitting in front of um a window and I've closed the curtains and I'm actually seeing like the pattern in the curtain way more prominent than uh-huh. what I normally do because essentially I've just been I've just spent the whole morning looking in, in, into patterns and talking to you about it it's, it's so interesting <laughs> anyway before I go off on a huge big rant Claire thank you so so much for coming on and talking to us about Peggy Angus and I would really encourage anyone listening please look at the show notes. I've got some great links to articles that give you a very whistle-stop tour of Peggy. And I'll leave a link to the Trower Gallery who had that exhibition on. And I'll see if they have any available, any books available in their shop because I would say buy it directly from them rather than somewhere like Amazon. Always good to support a gallery. Um, but before you go, I have one final question for you. And it is quite a big question. So feel free to sort of take your time and also take it as large or as personal to you but my final question is why is art important oh crumbs I think art I think art is essential really I I do workshops occasionally and people come and they say I'm not very good at drawing and I'm not very creative and I don't believe that (laughs) and when you ask people say oh I'm not Mm. very artistic um and then you find that they actually decorate uh, cakes or they garden or, um, you know, make ceramics or whatever. 
but I think everyone is creative and I think it's a, it's a it's a sort of inbuilt human thing everyone creates things they might not realize that they're doing it every day so I don't think art necessarily means you know getting out a paintbrush or a pencil or something and drawing something or doing something in you know as art as something so such a formal thing but I think it's it it, it engages part of the brain you know when you're drawing I was told once you can't it's impossible to draw and speak at the same time and that's actually true so I think it must occupy a certain part of the brain and it completely absorbs you it makes you just focus on one thing which we all know is sort of good for our, our mental um, health and such and also it makes you look at things even having just even if you just do them for yourself I think that's the thing we feel very pressured that making art it has to be perfect people look at it um it doesn't like it's it's people you don't have to show people what you do if you don't want to but you know just practicing drawing or doing whatever it is you like to do taking photographs or arranging piles on the beach or or whatever or making a you know a little sculpture out of twigs and sticks when you're out on a walk anything anything it's just an inbuilt thing in humans I think to create things that are pleasing to the eye because we appreciate things about nature I almost almost wanted to look into this as a PhD about concepts of beauty you know is there culturally we have different associations with different colors but I don't think that there's any culture on earth that wouldn't look at a nice sunset and go oh that's lovely or look at clouds and go you know isn't that beautiful or whatever not maybe at every moment of every day because you know sometimes life takes over but I think it's just it's just really important to just make something and create something whether it's digging your garden or printing something um and it adds fun and variety to life and it's rewarding that is an amazing response to that question I have asked now about I've asked this question maybe 35 (laughs) 36 times now and every answer I get is so different but I I think that's so important what you said there like it doesn't have to be perfect and it can just be for you and 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 oh I love that Claire that's so good and like you said that there are things universal that are beautiful and simple as well and and that's the thing I think in, in this day and age when you have all this technology and you need to be going here and doing that okay maybe not now at the moment because we're recording this during lockdown but there's a pressure to I don't know have all these things and meet all these needs in order to be considered I don't know good or decent at something or in in with the crowd if you will but there's nothing better than just getting a little bit messy and creating something and see even if it goes right in the bin at the end of it you've at least exactly and never put anything in the bin I, I mean, I, oh, really? I think the, the thing about, um, you know, I'm not going to start something unless I know it's going to be perfect. Well, yeah, everyone thinks that, they, you know, if you're writing, if you're 10 and you're writing a story for your English homework or you're 46 and you're writing a report for work or whatever, the fear of a piece of blank paper <laughs> never, never leaves you that sort of oh, a brain freeze. But I think on, you know, social media yeah. or when you go to an exhibition or something, all you see are the finished sort of perfect versions of whatever it is someone's created. You never see the ones that's like, oh, dear, yes. that didn't go very well. Or I wasn't really concentrating there, was I? But um, I keep everything. And sometimes um, 
I chop them up to make labels for things. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I use them to wrap up presents or my online orders. <laughs> so you might get a free print or something. Um, or, or, or print on top well, of things. Well, there you things. are. That's the other thing, <laughs> is that, you know, layering stuff up. So if you don't throw things away, and also if you don't throw things away, you might see that actually you're getting better at what you're doing because you're practicing it, which is the other thing is that if you practice anything, you get better at it, don't you? So, or discover what you actually really like doing best. Well, this is true in seeing, you know, like you said, your, your progression. Okay, so I take that back. No, I will don't. not throw anything <laughs> in the bin. Um, Claire, it has been an absolute joy to talk to you. And thank you once again for, what first and foremost, introducing me, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this to the powerhouse that is Peggy Angus. and just to celebrate who she was as a designer and an artist and thank you so much so Claire where can people get in touch with you and connect with you and find out find um, out what well, there are a few places to? one is Instagram um if you find Claire Dales art you'll find me there and my website which is clairedales.com they're the two best places probably Amazing. And I will leave links to both of them in the show notes below so people can connect with you after this comes out. Claire, thank you so much. I've loved oh, talking to you. Oh, thanks very much. It's been really fun. <laughs> yeah, I really like <laughs> to talk about her. And she's really inspiring. I just wish I'd met her myself, you know. Mm, well, that's it. It's always, it's always one of these things where I always think it's great to see and meet people that have a little sort of, you know, who, who know the person that's no longer with you, but it it's never as good as, as meeting the person themselves. But I yeah. think you also get a good sense of who they were yeah, from totally. the company they keep. But, yeah. Yeah. But she's so interesting, though. Like, I was reading this thing about her and her, her and her daughter. They had a really sort of stormy relationship. Um, but, yeah, what what a woman. I've just, I've just loved it. So thank you so much. And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History podcast. Thank you once again so much to Claire for coming on and speaking so brilliantly about Peggy Angus, who, cards on the table, I knew absolutely nothing about before Claire wrote in to suggest talking about her. And she is a complete powerhouse. I really hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learnt a little something, not only just about Peggy, but the world that she was part of and the people that she has inspired and the legacy that she's left behind. She's incredibly important and I really do hope that she gains more recognition. And this is what's so important about art history. You know, the narrative can always change and is forever evolving and people are always coming out of the shadows because people are always creative. And I think Peggy is just one of these amazing examples of someone who has had such a huge reach yet ended up in the shadows but we'll see what happens that's what keeps everything so exciting if you've enjoyed today's episode please make sure to like rate and subscribe which will mean you will never miss another episode it also helps other people find us as well and it would really mean a lot to me if you could just take a moment and leave me a little review on itunes or whatever you're listening to if you're able to you can also listen to this podcast on youtube and the videos that I make are very, very basic, but you do get to see the images that we're talking about while you listen along. And if you have a YouTube account, it would be great if you can subscribe on there as well. That would be wonderful and it means a lot to me as well. And if you leave a comment under the video, that also helps the algorithm pick us up. So every little helps, as they say. 
If you want to get in touch and discuss anything that you heard today, please feel free. You can email me, joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can contact me via Instagram at joesarthistory. My DMs are always open and it's always lovely to hear from people who have enjoyed the episode, who have learned something or on occasion some people that point me in the direction of another artist that's similar. Um, It's always great and always learning and always love to hear from people who have been listening. As always, all the images that we discussed in this podcast can be viewed on my Instagram page on my highlights reel. So this is episode 29. So if you go to my highlights reel at the top of my Instagram page and click number 29, you'll see the images that we discussed with Claire. You can also view the images on my Instagram video as well. Or if you would like them sent to you directly, just give me a wee email. I'll be happy to pass them along to you. Finally, I have been Jo McLaughlin, your host and your friendly art historian for this episode. And I look forward to welcoming you next time on the Jo's Art History Podcast. Until then, keep learning and remember, art is for all. Bye.